Out of the 93 Best Picture winners, one must be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Quest for the Bestest. It's that podcast from the Backlog Boys, where we are trying to figure out the very best, best picture winner of all time. And last week, we had a very interesting film. We talked about Gandhi by Richard Attenborough from 1982, a uh, a fairly long movie, longer than the one that we're talking about this week, um, by about an hour. and uh, by a lot. And we had a lot of interesting stuff to say about it, about, about the man Gandhi, about the movie Gandhi, and uh, about, well, we didn't really get, we didn't talk about like the nature of nonviolence or anything like that about what I wrote the description about. So, you know, it doesn't really <laughs> matter. Um, hopefully, we continue on the peaceful, the peacemaking road, the path to peace in this episode, where we will be talking about A Beautiful Mind, directed by Ron Howard from the year of my birth, 2001. Um, so, this movie is the same age as I am. Uh, and,. I think without any further ado, should we get a plot synopsis and then jump in, figure out what what is this movie about and what do we like about it and dislike about it? Should we do yes. that? I think that we should like do a that. a pretty good plan. We should format our podcast around those. those that sounds like events. a that's a great idea, Tucker. I'm so glad you have a beautiful mind for thinking of oh, that, Tucker. Thank you, thank you. Who's yeah. the, who's take the, the real beautiful mind? Abram, do the plot synopsis. I, I, I haven't done it in a while. So this this comes from Rogue One, not Rogue One, Han Solo, a Star Wars story director, Ron Howard, which yeah, is truly. my point of reference True. for for Mr. Yeah. Ronald Howard. And so this film, very different. This is, in fact, a, a, a pseudo-biopic and doing some research. It's not exactly accurate to the life of one John Nash. No. However, it is a depiction of the life of Mr. Uh, John Nash, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist. Um, and in this story, we see him arrive at Princeton, formulate his theories, and then maybe be part of a United States plot during the Cold War to foil a, a Soviet nuclear attack until we find out that that's all fake because John Nash is suffering from severe schizophrenia in the film on a dime flips to being the sort of study about his mental health and the tolls that that puts on him personally and on his family uh, with, with one Jennifer Connelly, his wife Alicia. Uh, and it's kind of just about the ways that his life unfolds as he's battling with this invisible disease, these invisible people in his life when yeah, he learns communism. that communism, where he yeah. learns that he has this no in, affiliation with this the invisible enemy that he's fighting. Uh, so, uh, that yes. being the red specter. <laughs> a specter is haunting Russell Crowe's mind. That's a horrible joke to make. But very good plot mm-hmm. synopsis, Abram. Thank you for that. Um, and anyone care to dive in first on the uh, the initial thoughts? Pull something out of their own mind, be it beautiful or not? Tanner? Abram's holding a breath. Tanner's holding up his hand. Where do we go first, boys? I think Tanner I wants to speak. I liked A Beautiful Mind. I thought it was a good okay. movie. Um, I think it does some inter- I think it does an interesting thing uh, to shake up the the biopic format. Uh, that it, you know, it doesn't exactly evolve out of, you know, typical Oscar drama fair after that. But that one interesting thing is enough to set it above uh, some some of the other ones on our list so, thus far, maybe even the one that we did last week. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, th- I, I think Russell Crowe was good. I thought Jennifer Connelly was good. Um, uh, it, it was a very orange movie in, in terms of color grading and stuff like that. It, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think... 
I think it was good. Uh, I'm interested to talk about it and to delve into some of my other my other likes and dislikes, but I want to know what you guys thought. Okay, okay. Tucker? Abram's I was doing his little inhale thing before he wants to speak, so we're going to uh, let him go. Okay, Abram, Abram. I, I thought this movie was, was great. I, I think it was what a lot of Oscar biopics... I thought it wasn't what a lot of Oscar, Oscar biopics are, which is boring. I thought mm. this movie was very entertaining. I think this is a very watchable and fun film. I think oh. that it's also a very clever film. Mm. Um, and as a result, I think that it really, it, it feels similar to me to, to Argo, where how deep is the narrative really? How accurate is the narrative really? Those are questions we can discuss, but, but the experience of watching A Beautiful Mind is really excellent. I, I found it to be a, a harrowing and inventive movie, um, and certainly one of, I think, my favorite fi films we've watched for Quest for the Bestest, easily. Yep, I'm wow. on the exact same page there. This, this watching this and talking about how biopics, we get so many of those for Best Picture, this is what those biopics should be. This is what they aspire to be, in my opinion, which is taking reality and making it inventive for film, using the medium of filmmaking to accentuate storytelling in really interesting ways. It's so visually creative. I think the performances are fantastic, and it's just, it's such a fascinating idea for a story based in reality or not as it is a guy who's intent way smarter than any of us could even possibly dream of being i'm sorry to knock you guys down a peg uh, but, i could figure that stuff out to be fair <laughs> but who is who is battling in his own mind a, a, a scare that is treating him in different ways and treating the people in his life in different ways and then flipping the movie as you said on a dime to the unpacking of that and how it impacts relationships and how he has to deal with coming to terms with his own mind, I think is endlessly fascinating. This movie just feels so focused. It's such a consistent tone throughout, and it's exactly what it's going for. And and as you said, Abram, this is one of my favorite movies we've watched. It's not, like, top three, but it's, it's no. oh my god, it's up there. Considering we're at number 46 now, we're getting up there in numbers. This is certainly in the upper echelon. Okay, well, I didn't like this movie very much at all. Um, I'm just going to say it. I did not think it was very interesting. Um, it oh, was entertaining here. enough nice. to, uh, to, to watch the whole thing. Uh, and I'm glad it was the length it was. Um, but it was drivelous to me. And, uh, and while the filmmaking is stuff word, drivelous? is inter That's a great word was, was somewhat, um, inventive. Drivelous. It, it, it was, there's only one special thing about this film, uh, and it's a thing that I think films have done in other times now. I'm not sure if this is, like, the first or not, so, um, but I, it didn't grab me very much at all. Fair. Okay, well, that provides Entirely for an interesting fair. conversation here. Well, yeah, we I think we should go right there. Of the truth. Yeah, I think it's because T Timo, you, we were doing a little bit of bush beating in, in, the, in the opening statements, as we always do. What's the mm -hmm. one thing what was that one hook for you that, that you think other films have done better? So I, I, what I was referring to was the um, would be the show, showing of our of, of of John Nash's fictional or his his made up characters um, in real in the real life of of the film um, and showing them in conversation. And while that's an interesting technique that works a, a lot through the beginning of the film, uh, I it's it just it like. I don't know. It gets it gets old for me quite quickly. Um, in when once we figured out, and I'm like, okay, this guy's back. And like, while it's cool to see him try to to wrestle with it all and figure it out, it it doesn't actually feel that inventive to me. In that you, while you're showing a character, and you're switching between point of view 
um, between what the real world and in, in between his head, the just the 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 real straightforwardness of it is a little not it, it, it's not working for me when it comes to just trying to communicate that we're seeing these these people after we've discovered it. Before, I think it works very well because we, we don't know. We're in, in the dark as much as anyone else is. But once we've come around to discovering that, um, it's a little, uh, I don't know. I also think that his, his mental illness plays into a plotting issue in my head. I think the film is laid out kind of strangely. Um, the, the way that we, we, we delve so much into these, into especially the, the scare and the, uh, the conspiracy uh, that Nash is experiencing. And then we, we quickly divert into the hospital and then we just like run, rummage along the last um, you know, 50 years of his life quite quickly towards the end. I found my, my third act lackluster quite a, mm. if just to to be frank about it here's what i'd you, say you should be timo about it i don't want you to be frank about it that's a great point <laughs> that's a great point and here's what i have to say timo i actually i'm almost of the exact opposite mind i think that those elements are more effective once they're revealed to not be real and because the reason i feel that is because the the beginning of the film that first act for me sets up a very nice kind of espionage thriller and not being familiar with who John Nash was, I thought, okay, this is compelling by its own right. But then when we recognize the ways that these kind of divergent worlds are actually one in the same, but one isn't real, that overlapping of reality and, and fiction is, is really interesting and leads to, I think, some really great moments of visual moments and character moments, whether we're talking about the shed out behind the house where where John Nash is confronted by all of these soldiers and 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 Parcher and then you go in and you've got this whole military base set up but then in reality it's actually this crazy conspiracy den that then Alicia finds I think that's a really interesting blurring of lines visually I I think that's really inventive but and then when you get to a character moment like like Nash freaking out uh, at Patcher in in Princeton when he tries to return and it's cutting between Patcher being there and the camera changing and it's just him crazy yelling there's students around him and there's nobody there I think that's when those characters their overtness becomes a tool to kind of explore visuals and themes and character moments that I found to be really effective yeah I think this movie for me just builds on pretty divergent but I think equally interesting concepts you start off with what is relatively, to the rest of the movie, pretty standard biopic fare. You got a smart guy, he's out of school, he's got some friends, he's got, you know, a little bit of social disconnect. Sure, fine. Though, I think that's interesting enough on his own merit, him being so disconnected from everyone else. Uh, the editing, I think, being really interesting, it sort of cropping to different sections of, of uh, a scenario to sort of mimic him really noticing everything around him. And his relationship with uh, with his roommate, um, played by Paul Bettany, who is fantastic in this, um, I think that's compelling enough that I'm like, okay, I want to know more about this guy. What is he gonna? What kind of shenanigans is he gonna get into? How, why why is he important? And then when you shift into him being wrapped up in U.S. government spy thriller stuff, and and you get a little action sequence, you get a lot of people stalking him. There's really creative shots of, of people off in the distance and him being stressed and confused about it, and the filmmaking reflects that. That's equally interesting. Okay, oh, we're shifting into this now. And then you find out it's not real and you have to spend the rest of the film unpacking that and how that reframes the relationships that he's had and him dealing with his own mind and his relationship with his wife and his wife dealing with, with his problems and, and the, you know, mental health issues and, and him returning to, to school and all that. I think it's 
interesting at the beginning. Okay, now this is really interesting. And then, oh, wow, this is really something special that they were able to to so convincingly put you in the mind of an unreliable narrator for the first half, two-thirds of the film that you're so ground into this reality that when it's flipped, you really have to, in my perspective, rewire your mind to to think about this movie in a different light. And that's also mm. reflected in the filmmaking. And I told Tanner about a few of these things, but this movie has such an obscene attention to detail in, in what's reality and what's not. Just to go through a few examples, he's, of course, he's got... He's got three people who are who are hallucinations of, of his um, mental illness, being Parcher, uh, his roommate Herman, and his uh, niece, who I don't remember her name, she's not really that important. But the three of them are pretty solid characters in the in that first part of the movie. Like, yeah, they're there. Why would they not be there? He's interacting with them. But uh, Paul Bettany throws a, a desk out a window. Uh, they're in a car. Chase, okay, of course these things are happening. But... When you really pay attention to this, and of course, if you ever watch this movie again, you're not going to be able to not notice these. There are ways that that Ron Howard hints at their that their uh, their fictionalness. Um, you've got a sequence where um, uh, Parcher comes out of the building behind um, behind Nash, and uh, you can actually see it's one shot. You can actually see the door in the corner of the frame, but it never opens. He just appears there. You've got another one where Paul Bettany's character leaves the room. But he doesn't touch the door. The door just opens for him. But you don't notice that if you're not paying attention. You've also got to... Finally, you've got one of the of the little girl running around playing around some pigeons. The pigeons don't go anywhere. They don't notice because she's not real. And it's those sort of attention to detail filmmaking moments that make this movie so special. It's so grounded in reality, but when you're really paying attention to it, holy shit, they thought this through. Um, sure. I mean, yeah, I think it is just a thing of like, does the film make you pay attention to it? Uh, do do I do I find myself wanting to return to this? No, I don't. Uh, I think this I think the film really has uh, one trick up its sleeve for audiences that saw this back in uh, the year 2000 or 2001. Um, and the, returning to it is you, you, you can catch some things like that. But I think it pales in comparison to other films who have done it better. Granted, this this film that I'm going to use as an example has 20 years on this. But something like The Father, which we talked about, maybe a card in the corner, maybe not. I don't know. But Abram rubs the, his mouth indignantly. Yes, of course. I might actually bring this up, yes. Okay, okay. But my, from my perspective, The Father wholly, wholly buys into its conceit of putting you in the mind of an unreliable narrator. And makes you uneasy the entire time just like he is whereas the a beautiful mind sort of uses it as a as a as a bait and switch a trick for the audience i'm not saying either is better or worse but there's a definite divide wherein like i would definitely return to the father to like see the catch on like set decoration things or or time continuity things that i didn't catch as opposed to looking for a handful of of, of background details in a beautiful mind when it tells much more of a, if you if you dilute it down, a pretty basic biopic story. I think those two films are similar in some ways, but not in others. And I, I think that the ways that they're dissimilar are the important ones. So it's it's it is funny bringing up the father because I am the infamous father hater on mm -hmm. the on I'll the rub quest my panel. off ignorantly as well. <laughs> um, but in solidarity. The the reason I think something like this works better for me is because. Mm -hmm. We're not foregrounding the gimmicks that Tucker is talking about. My biggest problem with The Father is that it felt like a gimmick movie. To me, this doesn't because they use these 
elements within uh, Nash's mind to tell this larger story about how he and the people around him deal with this mental illness. And, and, I, and I personally find it re reductive to want to look for more when a, a, a theme in an illness like schizophrenia deserves mm -hmm. this much time to be unpacked. And I think the ability to blur reality in a way that makes you understand intimately how Nash is feeling, but also how the people around him are forced to react and respond, always yeah. on edge, I think is really effective. I, if, I think that if the film had been more overt about the Elmas Tucker was talking about, it would have kind of broken the reality because that is Nash's world, right? And, and I think that the fact that you can find the, these threads to pull on and unravel it without everything feeling like a facade is very important to what the film is trying to say and what it's trying to convey to the audience. Yeah. Sure. I'm glad uh, those elements are present. I didn't notice them. I learned about them after the fact. But I think it's something that only supports my enjoyment of the film because there is that attention to detail. But I'm very glad that it wasn't like, oh, hey, wait, oh, this guy's not touching the door when it opens. What's that about? No, I'm so grounded in, in Herman's relationship with Nash that, no, of course he's real. He's, he's his buddy. He's a funny, funny guy. Why, why would he be fake? Uh, and then there is a second viewing reality where you're able to unpack it in a larger way. And I think that's really important. It sure. uses subtleism to the nth degree. Uh, what I will say is, uh, and, and Abram brings up uh, the, the schizophrenia as being as being a plot element of this film. I will say that if we're using the medium of film, uh, I think the father is a much more accurate. You know, this is this is all conjecture and guesswork, quite honestly. And you know, from outside perspectives looking in, um, I think the father uses the medium of film much more effectively to put you in the put you in the in the mind of someone suffering from dementia and alzheimer's use the film filmic methods to sort of create that feeling as opposed to uh the schizophrenia in a beautiful mind where it is much much more of a audience looking at a, a movie theater screen and like watching a character experience it in inaccurate ways i will say uh, I, I, I was curious about the portrayal of schizophrenia in this film, so I looked into it. There is an hour-long video by a woman who has schizophrenia and uh, consults others on the internet on how to live with, the, with, live with the disorder. And she said that some of the aspects of this film were accurate, like some of the smaller things that, that, uh, that John does, like splaying out uh, documents and looking for narratives that may or may not be there. But... Some of the things, some of the more grandiose and more uh, more important things to the story aren't exactly accurate. Like how John creates an entire building full of super secret government spies and, and scientists and stuff. That's just not how schizophrenia works. You don't construct entirely new realities. Um, if we're looking at John Nash's actual experiences as a John Nash biopic, John Nash actually never had visual hallucinations he he said that all of his hallucinations were audio or audible instead of visual and uh a bit a trivia piece uh apparently in private john nash told somebody who then told the press that uh he liked the movie but it wasn't him quote, to quote exactly it wasn't sure. me yeah well i think that in 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 movie land that well, if you're going to strive for accuracy in a, in a in a film, it is a still a film, and and you have to work around stuff to make story work, and that's kind of a case with everything. I found that the way that the film communicates a lot of its information is is in a in a stereotypically filmic manner, um, and 
and and some of the more revelatory scenes when we've got when we find out he has schizophrenia, we are told that we it, while we have been shown it the entire film, the film doesn't know how to figure out a way to like when it's not subtle at all when it comes to comes around to saying it now you probably have to be quite blunt at this point in a film to to get the point across that he's severely mentally ill but it none of the big like revelations in the film come through like an audience like me going like oh it's it's a it's always like a character will say a line to another character and then i'll be like Oh yeah, okay. I've been told that this is as such. He has schizophrenia. These characters aren't real. It's through the. We were never hinted at any of that through the filmmaking in a way that's noticeable. Like you said, Tucker, those are good points about the details in the background. But do details matter if you don't notice them? I didn't notice any of them, and I'm sure I would on a second viewing. But I'm not super enticed to view it a second time. Can I go? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Yes. The one thing I would say about that is I think what this film does with its not its subtleism and and it, it's a weird line to walk is what, uh, what you're saying of yeah there's the subtle things but you wish it had been slightly more overt so you could make the realizations without being explicitly told to you but I would say why this film works for me at least and, and I think Abrams sort of on the same page is that you are so grounded in his reality at for the first half that there's that there's no question. That it's that it's reality, and it's only when someone ex- like arrests him and puts him in a mental asylum that that reality is finally broken. And of course, that's very obvious. But what this film is working towards, as Abram mentioned earlier, is the unpacking of how this mental illness impacts the lives around him. People were to- his wife was told by a doctor that your husband, who has been kind of kind of on edge for the last few months has schizophrenia. She was told that. Of, of course she was told that in reality. And they're showing that through the film of, of how she experienced that. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's a weird line to walk, but I do think that from, from my perspective, the film does it really well and makes it pretty jarring to have that entire reality uprooted. And that, I think that's why it's such a compelling twist and why I find both halves equally interesting. If I was feeling myself reaching for those questions in the first half, I would have felt like, okay, yeah, we're... we're we're speeding towards a twist and just waiting for the twist to happen. But I was rooted in the story. The twist happened. I'm like, okay, got to reframe this. Now spend the rest of the movie unpacking it. And I find both halves to be fairly balanced and equally interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I don't agree with the notion that all film, extracting meaning from film or really any art has to be about discovery. I don't think you need to work towards a realization <laughs> for that realization to be effective. I, I think that the ways that you track alongside Nash and ble- believing all this to be reality and then immediately not believing it to be reality anymore is a very effective and emotionally resonant turn in the movie. And even though it's not one that is telegraphed through through subtlety, as Timo was saying, I, I think it is one that follows along with the, with all of the characters in the narrative, the ways that they are suddenly thrust with this realization also. And, and for me, I find that to be effective. I don't think that we always need f- films to try to leave us breadcrumbs towards a realization for us to feel fulfilled and active as audience members. Hmm. An interesting point there, Abram. Tanner, you were going to say yes. something? 
Um, I want to talk about, well, we, we talked about, you know, the, the twist of this, you know, that, that first half up until, you know, he's abducted. By the way, a little bit of trivia. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is at the very front of the crowd when he gets when he gets abducted and brought to the psychiatric hospital. A uh, little, little nepotism from from old, from old Ronnie there. But well, it's not, it's not like she was probably paid anything no, to be in this probably, movie. He probably She's picked her up from there. school or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Um, That's the weakest but, form of nepotism you can get. It's like, yeah, she was an extra. Phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to talk about the, you know, the the hev- the heavy family and marital drama that is the second half of this film. Uh, and and through that, we can talk about uh, Jennifer Connelly's performance and things of that nature, and, and really delve into uh, Russell Crowe's performance as well. Stop! Stop nodding your head so hard. Get when I say Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> God damn it! Uh, but what are what are your guys' thoughts on this on this latter half? You know when John Nash is you know sort of uh, actually I, I want to give my thoughts first. Forget, oh, okay. forget all forget all you guys. I, I want to give my thoughts first. Uh, I think it is compelling and you know really literally tragic when you see there's especially that one uh, that one shot of John Nash holding his infant son. And just completely disconnected from reality, from the yeah. from the medication that he's taking, and his wife has to come and grab the baby from him. I think um, Alicia is very much she she's very much put upon in this whole film, and there's a conversation to be had about like the role of like of our central female character basically being uh, a caretaker for her husband who has to deal with all this stuff. And you know, uh, uh, who's to say how accurate that was to John Nash's actual life and Alicia Nash's actual life but i think jennifer conley does a very good job i think russell crowe does a very good job um yeah i I'm, I'm also sure there's some some problematic elements in how he portrayed this you know i i saw him at multiple points you know he's he's shuffling around and he's he has his eyes dropped and he's almost like that i don't know how accurate that is to someone dealing with you know heavy heavy schizophrenia but regardless i think in those dramatic scenes they both do very well yeah, I think the dramatic scenes work. I think the the most probably the one that works the best for me is uh, when he shoves Alicia um, at the end because he thinks that the, the the GI man's got the gun to her head, um, and that works because we're cutting back and forth between reality. You know, we're doing we're doing shot reverse shot, but it's shot reverse to you know in, the reverse is in 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 his mind, and the and the other one is not, and that's communicating what we need to know there, and I think it works pretty well. My issue with the second half is that kind of similar to Tucker's issue with Gandhi was that it feels like a collection of scenes. And while I think that that's not usually a big problem, there's the through line through the film of how he's dealing with it all feels disjointed. And I don't always feel the the progression from one level to another. It's like, okay, now we're in the, we're doing this new thing. Okay. Now he's going to school. And then, you know, there's a good progression with the the scene in the courtyard there but as we as we move along and then as the film starts to skip time um you know far far away from our our 50s kind of narrative that we're in for most of the film to all the way up into the late 90s is like the the the, the scene collectionness of it and the and the more disjointed elements of the story um becomes more apparent to me could just be yeah. that we're in a den- denouement at that point he's he's gotten his his resolution in the climax of the film, um, but it it did feel like a a, a less through line um, than what was happening in the first half of the film, which did feel like it had a more cohesive plot. Now it's a more nebulous topic. I mean, I can kind of go at it from both angles, um, but that's kind of where I'm at at the second part. I 
I don't know. I ha I don't know which one I liked more, to be honest. So, Timo, I'm gonna take it back to ninth grade English and agree with a difference here. <laughs> oh my uh, god! Because I I, in large part, it didn't bother me the way that I was bothered somewhat by Gandhi. Because I think my issue with Gandhi is I felt like there were pivotal moments of plot that I felt were, were omitted or or written around. Here, for such such a more internal and personal struggle. I, I think that the, the selections of scenes were pretty effective. Uh, where I started to become lost a little bit, like you said, is when we when we really jump ahead at the very end of the film, yeah. when it feel, felt like there was an obligation to cover his uh, Nobel Prize win, which I don't think is necessarily a problem because we do get, I think, the nice ratcheting up of him just being at home, unable to work, his friend comes to visit, and his you know, his work is just complete nonsense to getting off the meds to having that scene of high tension where when Alicia realizes, oh, shit, he's not actually taking the meds. Right? I think that all works pretty well going through Princeton. But when you start to introduce things like his son is grown up and he's here regularly. Right. Then we start to become a little bit too encumbered, I think, with different elements. I think we could have tightened it a little bit. And what you could have done honestly is like a, is like fade to end the film and it comes up on, you know, like he's winning the award. It could have just been a disjointed final scene of him accepting the award and being like, after all this progress, John Nash got his Nobel. Because ultimately, the quest for the Nobel is is important to the film, his sort of delusions of grandeur. Not as important as grandeur. the quest for the bestest, though. No, Absolutely I, correct. I think Nothing's more think... important. Nothing after we get done important. with this, after we get done with this series, I think we should all go on the quest for the Nobel. Yes, so sure. you can get oh, it the fastest. Oh, all right, new, new, new competition, boys. See who can win a Nobel Prize first. <laughs> all right, uh, you get a high five if you, if you get the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, wait. <laughs> Hopefully, you get some kind of money too. Yeah. That would also be helpful. No, but I, I, I definitely agree with you, Timo. In in a small part, I do think that for me, the first half of the third act, as as Abram was saying, with him dealing with the repercussions of of um, the mental hospital and his drugs and, and all that is really compelling and does continue the momentum, but it loses steam. In the last 20 minutes, as you're jumping around and you're showing different scenes of him on campus and he's already sort of dealt with, with his uh, his mental um, disease, all of that is just, oh, okay, yeah, we, ha we have to show this stuff to wrap up his story, but it's, it's nowhere near as compelling as the rest of the film or as focused. So that's definitely one of my biggest issues with the film though and also i don't i don't i think the uh the old person makeup for jennifer conley and and uh russell oh, crowe uh, russell crowe is pretty it's mediocre it's totally fine but it's not it's not like gandhi where i felt it was really convincing yeah he kind of like yeah this is russell crowe with with yeah, old man face age, paint. age <laughs> makeup on and he's shambling a little bit more yeah yeah but but on the whole that especially that last act uh, first part of the last act is really carried by those performances. You get mm -hmm. a lot more of Jennifer Connelly on her own, dealing with those issues, shots of her just crying and dealing with these emotions. And man, I think both their performances are absolutely stellar. And in that first half, while it's not as exciting, uh, well, in the first part of the first half, I should say, with, with just um, John Nash on campus, it's not as exciting, but I do think that um, in certain aspects, uh, Russell Crowe's, performance is giving some time to shine you get a lot of real much slower moments of him just standing there like uh his you know wringing his hands a little bit his eyes darting around the environment he really does fall into that role he's got a really 
recognizable way of speaking. He's got a different uh, movement pattern. Like all these things sort of contribute to the believability of this character. And then when Alicia is introduced, you know, you can see him sort of change a bit. And he, of course, becomes more involved with his governmental conspiracy and, and all of that. And the one thing I was really worried about was that their relationship wouldn't be really believable. Okay, yeah, it's the it's the smart math teacher and his, and his hot student. Oh, joy. We're going to see this. But they share some really touching moments together. Their relationship builds in a believable way. And, and by the end, I'm fully invested in both of them and the sanctity of their marriage and, and her well, helping him along. Uh, well, speak- okay, sanctity is not what I... Not the well, right word. It's, but- I, I, sanctity is just a funny uh, word to use because uh, in real life, John Nash actually did cheat on his wife and have a baby outside of wedlock. So... <laughs> Sanctity was just a funny word that uh, that yeah, that, yeah. that reminded me of that. But now, I do have, I do have a few things. Sorry, Abram, Abram do you have do you want to go? Well, well, I was gonna go for the ham-fisted transition of oh, if their performances were so good, did they win any awards? Well, <laughs> thank you. I was gonna do that. I I was gonna do that as well. Uh, Jennifer Connelly did win uh, best actress in a supporting, supporting role. Supporting actress, yeah. Uh, she. I, I I'm I'm saying the full official title. Excuse oh, me. God. Uh, Ron Howard won best director. Uh, this the film Akiva Goldsman won best uh, adapted screenplay. Uh, it was Russell Crowe was nominated for lead actor. It was nominated for best film editing, best makeup, and best score or best original score. And also, obviously, like like we always say, though we don't need to, it won best picture. Yeah. Yes, it did. Um, any any a- crumbs in the in the technical categories there? Because I know I noticed a a certain cinematographer attached to this film that maybe you have heard of before. Roger Deakins shot this. Oh, movie. Daddy! Oh. Uh, this is a Deakins. Daddy movie. And so, yeah, it was, was kind of interesting seeing that in the credits. I was like, oh, Roger Deakins yeah. shot this movie because at times, at times, the cinematography is very flashy. It's very like showy, yeah. offy, and moving mm-hmm. around a lot, um, which you know is I think I think it works. And it, there are elements of the time that this film was made. There's some like nice like exposure flashes, um, which is a very late nineties, early two thousands filmmaking technique that is is just out of fashion now. Like it was crash. just it was just a thing. Yeah. Like Crash, like The Lord of the Rings, these are all they all come mm-hmm. from the same time period. Um I, I like the cinematography enough. I, I did I wasn't particularly drawn to it outside of the moments of flashiness. Um it's mm-hmm. obviously that this is in Deacon's earlier career i mean he he's has a super long career so it's kind of hard to say that he had an early career but well uh, uh speaking of lord of the rings uh i think uh, timo you can drop the act of like having actual issues with this outside of it beating fellowship of the ring for best picture that year um no i'm i'm okay <laughs> with fellowship not winning because it's, oh, okay. it's just, you, there's there's that whole deal with with return of the king feeling it feels very good for return of the king to win because sure, then it's yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. the last one well, yeah yeah um, I did have other thing. I, I do have another thing to say. It's about the the themes of this film because you know we talked about how in that the latter half, like the last thirty minutes or whatever, this film feel like uh, you know a rush job of like going through the, the last like twenty five years of his life leading up to the yeah. Nobel Prize. I think that is a symptom of this film failing to have any interesting themes that it delivers on. The, the the theme that it lands on after after toying with a number of them, you know, is Love Conquers All, which is a very like feel good, best picture winny theme for a movie. Uh, and it, it, once you get to the resolution of him and his wife do love each other, they overcome this, then that thematic narrative is done and you have 30 minutes left of the film to fill up. I think what would have been interesting is if it went for something more complex, 
if you you know it toys with the thing of like russell crowe doing having character development intertwined with his you know mathematical theories and like him understanding the world through this medium that's the whole thrust of the character uh, but it abandons that because we never really understand what his contributions to mathematics were to his his game theory that revolutionized modern economics we never learn about anything like that uh so yeah i think i think it, it fails on a thematic front to deliver anything interesting if you look no. at the imdb page the the tagline that it says is the only thing greater than the power of the mind is the courage of the heart which seems well, to be a th- that's well, the that's thematic. a pretty that's a pretty d- generic uh, ass a, a, a rejection <laughs> a rejection of the platonian uh, theory of the mind body and the and the uh, and the soul if you if you might if i might shut say. your pie hole kindly oh sorry 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 <laughs> now i'm i'm dr general theme usually in these in these videos oh, wow. a yes. doctor and a and a military placement jeez i mean i don't like to brag but yes uh, <laughs> and, and so uh i agree with you in part tanner sure i okay. I, I think and from my opinion, I I think your reading of of the love theme is a little bit too reductive because I I think that the the fact that you get that somewhat heavy handed but I think well written scene of um, Alicia with the baby and whatever the nicely coiffed gentleman who's like the underling to Nash is oh the guy from Saving Private Ryan yes yes that's yes I so so. Yeah, where she's talking about wanting to leave and then seeing her husband sometimes, I, I I do think that that it is a little bit more than like we just love each other so we can get through anything. I think there there are more layers there introduced by the by the sure. plot level mental health that complicate that. But I will say that you could have taken the idea of him having a problem with no solution and that being the thing that he does in math. You could have you could have followed that further thematically. Yes. I think, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, yeah, because while while there is the complications of the theme, the final answer that yeah, that not John Nash can't find is just love each other and all and issues will resolve themselves. Love conquers all, essentially. Uh, and it, yeah, that, that I'm turning into Abram Buna here. It's a bit too simple for my tastes. <laughs> <laughs> I am um, Tenor. You 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 came. You you said something interesting about the math in the beginning. I do wish I would have. I I understand that I have no ability to comprehend any of the math that real life John Nash did because mm-hmm. I'm I'm at a I'm at a at a bare minimum like high school calculus I can't do that oh, really yeah. any well anymore because I haven't done it in years so it's like I I'm not gonna be able to understand it but I I wished to feel more in in you know connected to his academic struggle yes. his academic conflict well, and 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 while that gets sidelined rightfully so for the schizophrenia narrative the mental health narrative mm-hmm. that is what the film is really about um th- bringing it back at the end just makes me think about it again what was happening at the beginning and being like oh he's trying to find his original idea and he can't find it and there's consequences yes. and stuff happening and but but none of it really matters because he's he finds it in in a couple minutes and so it gets, it i, I just a little left a left yeah. empty-handed kind of with his with his math i kind of want more math in this film which is really strange it gets dropped for a while and then he has a thing at the end where he's telling all the students about like no math math truly is an art form i'm like well you brought that up at the beginning when he's like a a a, 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 an artist searching for a meaning in the world as as a mathematician and then you bring it around 10 minutes before the end of the film those don't that through line isn't there 
math. And it gets all you completely. need, all you need is a muse. That's what yes. he, he needed. His math Listen, muse. And y- you can't explain it without being getting bogged down in math terms. You know, numerous times throughout the film, I think both times that they try to do the math theme, is they explain it via women in a bar. So, and that's something that we can relate to. Am I right, gents? <laughs> None of us have been to a bar, Tanner. <laughs> None of us has ever talked to a woman. Also true. Also true. Uh, I can't remember to say actually. Okay. <laughs> uh, but here's what I was going to say. I, I I think that there is something thematically useful about the sort of like the way we for a lot of the film we we travel around the math. My problem is more because a big crux of the film for when we were learning he has schizophrenia is that he cannot do his work, and that is mm-hmm. important to the character. So I think that there's a nice moment of triumph when he when he is working again, he is communicating with the students. I think that is a really sure. yeah. great payoff. That said, I still think that in that final leg, you could have done more with the theme at that point. So he I solves, have a, in thinking oh, about the okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so quick trivia thing: he solves the Riemann thesis. That that's what that one student tells him. But that's actually false. The Riemann thesis has never been solved. There is currently a million dollar prize out there for anyone who well, can solve he, the Riemann thesis. He, he's like, I'm I'm on I'm working Five. towards it. He's like, I'm working towards yeah, it, there. and I, I it. Uh, and it, it works sometimes, but it doesn't work all the time. So the, the film kind of like skirts around it. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. He didn't actually solve it. He he doesn't admit to solving it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So Speaking my question. My question for you, real quick here, at, at just t- towards the end, is um, mm-hmm. what is the climactic moment or scene of this film? Because I've been actually, hmm. educate me on what you think it is, because I've been trying to figure it out, you know, combining thematic ideas, plot ideas, where is, where does the climax of this film lie? Does it have a climax? Is it a non, I mean, you could make the argument that this is not a three-act film, even. Tucker, you might have an answer. Uh, yes, uh, I, I would say, at least my perspective, it's it's the whole sequence of, um, the, when it starts raining, and mm. and she's going out and finding the that crazy shed. The set design on that is just uh, set design 14. is quite good. I don't know how they did that. It, it uh, probably with the mind. stapler and some paper. Yeah, oh, a couple a couple <laughs> days a couple days a stapler and some paper. Timo, please do that for the next episode of questions. The whole thing. Oh, interesting. Uh, no, but I, I think that that from the you know music building and the separate storylines of him storylines of him inside and her outside and then of course that culminating in in the sequence of of parcher showing up and and trying and threatening his wife that's the culmination of of all the aspects of the film in my opinion i think that's pretty that's pretty clear and, and you get yeah, resolution and, and resolvement of the uh of the weight of that in for the rest of the film mm-hmm. yeah i, I mean it, it is the descending action you know what tucker and i were talking about like his last uh his last schizophrenic episode is with uh, Nasher on the college campus. Parcher. That, the, Parcher. He's Nash. What? Oh, he's Nash. I don't know why. I go, but yeah, it, it, that is really the descending action, that last confrontation with, with Parcher, and then he has his final conversation with uh, uh, Charles and Charles's niece. I, that, that's all the descending action. So I think, Tucker, you hit the nail on the head right there. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I was getting tripped up with the with the length of the descending action at the end of the yeah. film. It being 30, 35 minutes long, um, yeah. usually I'm, it's I'm used to like a, that, like, a, yeah. like a 12 minute or something like that. So, okay. I, I so understand what you're, what you're saying with that being, being the climax and I buy it. I buy it. We're also Those, an hour 40 into the movie at that point. So I, yeah. I think what we're really noticing here is not that there isn't a satisfying amount of descending action afterward. It's just that they, they, as we've said, had the ending with, with 
what I think is where the movie falls into biopic tropes is, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to show the scenes of this guy's life because we want to wrap up his his story, yeah. which aren't, aren't as interesting and aren't as paced out as well. And if those had been cut, as Abram said, it would have it would have felt more true to what I think was the pacing of the rest of the film, which was very consistent and was very unique for biopic. It's those Marvel movies. They poisoned your brain, Timo. You yeah. you expect a big uh, giant dragon battle at the end, and then they they wrap it <laughs> and up. And when John Nash doesn't do that, it's just terrible. Where are no. the dragons in the John Nash story? True. Why couldn't he hallucinated hallucinated like elves and, and dwarves and stuff? That's true. Or Frodo in the One Ring. Let's well, maybe, maybe scores in this movie. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah, do yeah. some numbers. Let's do our own little bit of math. Some math that I actually can oh. understand because oh. the computer does it for us. Oh, I was about Let's to say you, you're able to do simple division between numbers to the tens. No, place, I can't no, do that. It's but it's the computer. The computer yes, does four, it. A four number average is very complex. Okay, you guys ready? Boop. I did it early. Tucker. Ooh, there we go. I told you. I so, warned you. Our average score for this film is an eight. Point two, so that's pretty high. That's up there in gonna gonna put us at least in the in the top twenty, maybe. It's we will. It's a oh, tie. No. We're gonna oh, have to no. we're gonna have to do some oh, arguing no. here. Before we Can don't look too far ahead. I see far. what it's tied with. I see I gotta what it's go tied through with. some other stuff first. Tanner, okay. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. The um, oh, this the, is the sad. point breakdown starting from the bottom. Tanner gave it a seven. I gave it a seven point five. Um, Abram gave it an eight point seven. And Tucker gave it a 9.7, a very high score for this film. I think the most, I mean, I'm biased because I'm me, but I think the most interesting thing here is you gave it a 7.5, Timo, because you said you actually didn't like the movie very much. That was your opening statement. Yes, well, I I brought it up a little bit, a couple couple point, three points or something like that, Um, because I think you guys do make interesting points, and there are some other elements, like, that I like to think about in terms of him going to the Pentagon, like, does he go to the Pentagon, or is, like, where where does this whole thing start to unravel? Um, And I think there is possibility to dive in more with the with the what's real and what's not um but ultimately it didn't it didn't grab me i wasn't super interested when i was watching it um i was just watching it because i had to so well, that's kind of that's kind of how the how yeah. the points the lie out for me but i am that's how the quest cookie crumbles occasionally we all gotta we all gotta have some of those it is, it is. Speaking, tell you. speaking of the quest cookie crumbling let's just get this over with Let's it, just let's just rip off the band-aid. It is currently tied with Spotlight for place number 20. Yes. And we are going to have to figure out where it goes. Now Tanner, I think we I might work on the same side as you in this one because that's I'm going to vote for Spotlight to go ahead. That's really unfortunate that there's so that's two votes for Spotlight. <laughs> that's a vote for a beautiful mind. Totally a beautiful mind. I mean, I, I like Spotlight a lot. Spot I like Spotlight a lot. That's oh. a tongue twister there. But uh but this is just so much more unique. I mean, uh, that, my reason I'm connected to this movie so damn hard, and my score certainly reflects that, is that this is just what I wish every biopic was. Take an interesting story from reality, but soup that bitch up with a lot of filmmaking techniques. Tell a compelling filmic well, narrative. I don't with, know. With, th- th- this, is sp- this is a special case, obviously. Y- yes, that, of course, of course. Yeah. But, but there are uh, certain elements in certain films. Spotlight, which is a movie I like a lot, included where you don't really feel anything out of the filmmaking for it because they're just using flat lighting, steady cam, looking at the people, and it's like, okay, yeah, this is a movie but, I can watch, Tucker, but... 
does does what does this film do outside of? Or we don't have to go back to dive to dissecting a beautiful mind, but outside of the twist well, that's and, the, and that stuff. About. Outside of the twist, and it does this, this camera, this movie doesn't employ like really interesting camera movements or you know great, I mean, sh- great shot composition and stuff like that. No, the shot composition is not stellar, but there's totally a lot of interesting camera movements, camera techniques, editing techniques, having the the numbers fly at him, having that sequence with the girls like walking towards him in the dream sequence. Like they use what? film. Yeah, when he's they're sitting in the bar and there's four imaginary girls oh, walking up yeah, towards yeah, him. Yeah, and his okay. friends. I was like the yeah. dream sequence. What the fuck? Well, it's no, like okay. him projecting math. I don't he goes know. to his, he goes to his Sher- he goes to his Sherlock mind palace. Tucker, no, tag yeah, me but, in. Okay, high five. Thank you. So, so Tanner, here's what I would say. Okay. I, and you know that I notoriously think that Spiley is like 15 places too high on this list, but we're gonna set that aside for a second. I just wanted to get to say it again. Okay. The reason I think that a one-to-one, this is more effective on a, on a filmmaking level, is that there's a really interesting line in this film that I like a lot, where Nash says to Alicia, he says, I kind of miss talking to Charles. And, and I think that why this film is so effective is because it humanizes these figments of his, his imagination in a way that tells the story that only film could tell. I, you, I could read Spotlight and be just as moved by it because I think that mm. the success of Spotlight is the story of Spotlight. But mm. there is another dimension brought to the story of A Beautiful Mind that can only be accomplished by this medium. Here's what I will say. Uh, and Tucker and I were getting into it, into quite the argument about this. Is that Prequest got very heated today, let yeah. me tell you guys. What is the... What is the modus operandum of a biopic? Is it okay for something branded as a biopic to take so many liberties with the story that it's telling? Is that irresponsible to the source material, to the to the real life person or story it's trying to tell? I my, would yeah, what Abram? Sorry. My my answer is that it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I really believe in the fact that this is a piece of art and this is an art an artist's representation of that source material. Hmm. As simple mm-hmm. as that for me. Yeah, and it, and it makes it a better film. I, I think the reason I have problems with a lot of biopics is because it feels like they're just telling you scenes from a person's life because, oh yeah, you recognize this person's name. Let's show you a scene from it a- as a movie because you couldn't have seen it otherwise. But this tells a story that is it very clearly enhanced by the medium of filmmaking. And I think Ron Howard's direction and the score feeding into the scenes and all that, which the score's not phenomenal but i really think it works in this in tone establishment which is one of the things that i think this film works with best is i felt through the vast majority of this film like there was a big weight on my chest there's just this tension this dread that you're feeling like what what is real who can i trust these characters and you're seeing him go through these situations and deal with these moments and the people in his lives deal with it that that could not have been contributed without the the stylistic editing and then the music and everything funneling towards as i said at the beginning the focused tone of this film being just absolutely phenomenal. Abram, uh, well, uh, Abram, I just yes. can't believe that uh, you know you would betray the 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 sanctity of journalism. The sanctity of journalism. Like, I was gonna say Tanner, Tanner, Mister Journalist over here is like it's got to be true. It's got to be accurate. Yeah. Um, if, I you're, actually, if, you're telling, if you're saying you're telling the story of a thing, then you should tell that story. If not, just make it an original film, which is what I was saying to Tucker. Just make it an original story. This isn't the John Nash story in any way, really. Uh, it, sure, it is enhanced by the filmic methods and in the way that the film is made, but 
don't sell it as a John Nash biopic then if you're not going to tell John Nash's story. I think my problem with that criticism is we're, t- we're 20 years removed from the release of this film and mm-hmm. we're watching it because it's a best picture not because it's the John Nash story. Like we don't we have no connection to how this movie was sold. That that, that doesn't factor in to, to my experience with it in, in the slightest. Well, I'm saying it's sold as a biopic. They tell you this is I John Nash. I mean, I didn't this really is the real guy. What well, you knew it was a biopic, didn't Not you? Particularly, I mean, okay. I've never, I've never well, heard Tucker, John Nash's name before. Tucker, when you started watching the film, you were I didn't told, know Mutiny on the Bounty was a biopic. Tucker, when you started watching the film, you were told this is John Nash. He's a real person. <laughs> film, this is his story. The film uses biopic filmic language to tell you in its opening scenes that it is a biopic. It, 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 it's not like it's not like the poster says a, a new biopic. The, the, these are different. The, the selling, the, the communicating John Nash story. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the communication of of what the film is is through the film, not through the the contemporaneous material. I'm with I'm with Tucker in, in the large part. Tanner, I don't necess- I don't necessarily disagree with you that if you're trying to tell a a an account of an event or a person's life, you should tell it accurately. Mm-hmm. But in the context I of the you. film, I put that out there. great. That's that's. I want that in the record. I I, I think th- I think that to the effect that you're telling an artistic story, the beautiful mind, it doesn't matter to me. Mm. D- did what the film was trying to accomplish was that compromised by the liberties it takes with with the source material? And in my opinion, no. Okay. Well, I think that's just a difference in you know how biopics are made in Hollywood. Whether you think it's whether you think they have the 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 the, the what's the, the word I'm looking for the, the responsibility the to tell this story yeah. accurately or oh, not responsibility is much spotlight would be a worse film if they yeah. altered the story of what it was trying to of what it was the the real event if they alter that real event I think it would be a worse film because it's I, so it is so truthful and the whole the whole crux of the story is telling the truth, getting the truth out there, that it would be a worse film. I agree so, with you completely, but the I, reason um, I agree with you, sorry, Timo, but it, okay. it, it, I got to say it. Sure. I have to yeah, say yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, the yeah. thing about Spotlight is that is the reason Spotlight works. Spotlight works because of that. Yeah. A Beautiful Mind works without without that truthfulness. And I, and I think that speaks to a more creatively assembled film when, mm. when you, don't, you don't just need the source material to carry the runtime and the characters and the weight of everything. I, I agree with with Abram here in this in this specific case in the specific point of of a beautiful mind not necessarily needing to to follow along with the, the strict interpretation of John Nash's life to make a good story because ultimately we want a good story and Spotlight had a good story to begin with and they just turned it into a movie and while I, I don't know about the creative elements of this film because to me they seem very obvious as what you should do in telling a story about a, a schizophrenic person. Um, yeah. I guess that's kind of my the crux of my talking about the filmmaking is that it seems like, oh, of course, that's what you would do to show someone who's talking to an imaginary person in their head. Um, I'm just going to say that I did rank A Beautiful Mind. I gave it a higher number than I gave Spotlight, and so I will change my vote to put it above um, just so we can settle some discussion. Um and and in the point that that it it doesn't need to be super strict on his life, um, given that it is it is a story. I'm sorry, Tanner. I've had to betray you multiple times. You all times. have sick. You all have sick, twisted minds. I'm the only one with a real beautiful mind. <laughs> uh huh. Sure, buddy. 
<laughs> okay, okay. Shall we? You're gonna have to drag me away. I'm gonna, I'm gonna land a mean right hook on one of you while you're trying to drag me away, well, locking good, me up. Good for, thing for, I'm for having the right opinions. <laughs> Fourteen hundred miles away from you, Tanner. Good thing yeah. that. Let's let's spin that wheel. Why don't we? Sure. Fine. Whatever. We could say that um, that it cracked the top twenty because the A Beautiful Mind will go exactly at place number twenty in between All About Eve and Spotlight. So I think that's pretty good company for a for a film to be in. Yeah. I do want to extend the olive branch to Tanner and at least say that I do prefer Solo, a Star Wars story, to A Beautiful Mind. Okay. Oh well. I want to extend the spotlight and tell you that I like Solo more than Spot. <laughs> I actually don't. I actually don't. I'm actually burning don't. your olive branch. I don't care if you're joking, Tucker. I'm burning that olive branch. <laughs> I already uh, ate the olives. It doesn't matter. No. All right. All okay. Right. Well, this has gone on long enough. Let's do it. Uh, wheel, wheel. What's your deal? Give us a movie that makes us squeal. Is it on digital? Is it on real? Wheel, wheel. Hey, what's your deal? I'm glad you picked up a momentum a little bit at the end there. You were and the number we almost got the the oldest movie we could have gotten. We didn't. Oh. It's 45. That number oh is going to send us way back into the past. Woo. A true blast Woo. from the past. What is film number 45 for us today, Tucker? Film 45 is the 1933 Best Picture winner, directed mm-hmm. by Lewis Milestone and starring. I don't know, Louis Walheim, Lou Ayers, John Ray, Arnold Luce, I don't know any of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, no recognizable names that I can see. Um, okay. But it is uh, all, all Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, of all the old films, we got the fucking war one. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, Wings is also one. It's so similar. Oh, is it? So is Cavalcade. Oh, I didn't know that. I, so this is, is Gone with the Wind, technically. Oh, well, mm. well, hmm. Well, we got the war film. Tucker, how okay. long is All Quiet on the Western Front? Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is... Two and a half hours uh, uh, long. T- 2.13. Okay. That, 213. That's Not ridiculous. That's basically how long this one was, so yeah. yeah. And I didn't feel the runtime of this movie at all. Just going to put it out there. I, yeah, didn't I guess me yeah, I didn't me really neither. feel it until the it's last... Average, average movie length, I will say. There we go. Okay, all quiet on the Western Front. Well, it wasn't all quiet on the fr- on the Quest Front today. The Western Real. Front. Oh, the Western Front. Oh, that's oh. so good. I'm, I'm very glad that we thought of that now, and not like as soon as we got done recording the next episode. <laughs> I am sometimes. I am looking forward to watch this film. I've been wanting to watch this film for a while. It, I've seen it on quite a many lists, and I'm like, oh. This looks like a film I want to see, so I'm glad we got the chance. Um, sit down. Is it? This is a, a sound film, right? It's not silent. No, the uh, Wings is the only silent film okay. that ever won Best Picture, except for the artist. Uh, but <laughs> shut up, <laughs> people! It's like a technicality. I mean, that yeah, came out yeah, so. yeah. Okay, well, we no, will be sound, yes. we will be talking about All Quiet on the Western Front next week. Thank you for joining us to talk about a beautiful mind. All three of you, I will say, you do have quite beautiful minds. Very good points today. Oh, thank you. Um, and. We will Jennifer catch Conley has a beautiful everything. Let's just say that. Okay. Stop being I, horny. <laughs> on Jesus. Man. And with that, I must bid you adieu. Peace.